So we'll spend a fair amount of time here on this verse that uh, I think has, has rightly troubled many of us. I love Jacob, I hated Esau. And Malachi is really a, an interesting book. Okay, we're, No one knows exactly how to date Malachi, but a lot of the language and a lot of the concerns of Malachi um, overlap with Nehemiah. They both address a lot of the same problems. And so many people think that um, he belongs somewhere um, here during the time of Nehemiah. And we've never spent a lot of time emphasizing this on our trip um, through the Bible um, in terms of dating and all of that. But when people try to figure out, you know, where does this book belong? Uh, we have here in Malachi a lot of talk about the temple, you know, bringing tithes to the temple. Uh, you know, this is a verse often used in church when you're trying to get people to put money in. Okay, but clearly the temple was built. And uh, so other verses like this tell us, well, this is after uh, things had been uh, constructed. Okay, so the book of Malachi opens with these words. The Lord says to his people, I have always loved you. Okay, that's a statement by God. I have always loved you. But they reply, how have you shown your love for us? Okay, they kind of seem to reply, well, it, it doesn't seem like it. They seem to be doubting hear God's words, I have always loved you. And then God, uh, there's some conversation, and then God says to the priests, children honor their parents, and servants honor their masters. I am your father, why don't you honor me? I am your master, why don't you respect me? You priests despise my name, and yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And we have this dialogue back and forth. God would say things are this way, and then the people would seem to question, well, how is that possible? All right, so God tells the people, I've always loved you, and they don't seem to really believe that's true, or at least, boy, we don't have any evidence of it. And then he says to the priests, uh, you don't respect me, you despise my name. Remember, name in the Bible is much, much more than just the person's identity. Name encompasses the whole person, the character. So could we say they despise God's character, and yet they ask, well, how have we done that? Okay, and it's like that all the way through. We just skip forward to Malachi 3 where God would say, you have said terrible things about me. But you ask, what have we said about you? So it's just interesting uh, back and forth. All right, so what, what I take away here from these chapters of Malachi is uh, the people's attitude is God doesn't love us. We despise his name, his character, and we say terrible things about him. It, it's kind of a, a sad conclusion here of the Old Testament that this is where the people are. Um, at this time. All right, so let's go back to the beginning here. So God says, I've always loved you. They reply, doesn't seem like it. And then the Lord answers. Now, now why would you answer it this way? Esau and Jacob were brothers, but I have loved Jacob and his descendants and have hated Esau and his descendants. Okay, and all the translations have it this way. And of course, um, Paul quoted this in Romans 9. Okay, what does that mean? God loved Jacob and his descendants, and he hated Esau and his descendants. Um, now, we won't spend time but, uh, on Romans 9, but we will have to spend a lot of time on Romans 9. That's the, probably the big chapter, if you're a Calvinist, that uh, Romans 9. You're really going to talk about this one a lot. But here, when Paul says, as it is written, and he's quoting Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. All right, so, um, of course, many people would interpret this. Um, here's a, a fairly well-known uh, commentary on Romans. 
And this individual would say, I have argued that this passage gives strong exegetical support to a traditional Calvinistic interpretation of God's election. God chooses those who will be saved on the basis of his own will and not on the basis of anything works or faith, whether foreseen or not, in those human beings so chosen. Everything is God's call. God decides some who will he will elect for heaven and others for eternal damnation, and, and it's entirely God's decision. And here, even before the birth of um, Jacob and Esau. Okay, another book that um, God hated the non-elect before their birth. And uh, one other book here called uh, Sovereignty. Uh, it has been customary to say God loves the sinner, though he hates the sin. But that is a meaningless distinction. What is there in a sinner but sin? Okay, so, you know, the, the phrase, it's often quoted, you know, um, hate the sin but love the sinner. Well, here, no, I mean, the sinner, this is God's elect, and so the sinner is just sin. So you hate that person as well. So I think it's important to talk about this because how we understand this certainly, uh, I think, has a lot to do with our picture of God. Well, we can just ask, okay, this person that God hated, how did God treat Esau? Okay, you must have um, dealt with him quite terribly. But, um, you know, we just read about Esau. And he said to Jacob, remember Jacob came to appease him. And he was worried when he came back that Esau would kill him. And Esau said, my brother, I have plenty. Keep what you have for yourself. And then in Genesis 36, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the people of his house, along with all his livestock and all the possessions he had gotten in the land of Canaan, and went away from his brother Jacob to another land. He left because the land where he and Jacob were living was not able to support them. They had too much livestock and could no longer stay together. And so we see Esau here having huge family, lots of livestock, I mean, wealth. So anyway, at least the life of Esau, from what we know, you know, it seemed like, um, from a worldly perspective, he did pretty well for himself. Well, here's, here's the case I would try to make for how to understand Esau being hated by God. And the, the expression here is uh, oriental hyperbole. And hyperbole, which, you know, is a rhetorical exaggeration that's not intended to be taken literally, that produces, the, the, the purpose is for emphasis. You're trying to make a point. You're trying to make uh, a contrast. So it's a verbal extravagance. And this is very, very common in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So just to give you some examples here, in, in the Psalms, David would say, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. The King James says, I make my bed swim. Now, of course, we know what that means. He cried a lot, right? But the expression um, here would be you know, just really extreme uh, here to, to make a point. Okay, we use a lot of these today, but how would you want to translate this? You know, I'm so hungry I could eat a cow, or I have a ton of homework. You probably do have a ton of homework, but do you really have a ton of homework? I mean, you say that, uh, maybe you do, but you say that really because you, you want to make a strong point. Emphasis. You know, it's raining cats and dogs. Okay, translating this to another language, the people would be, you know, really confused. What in the world you're talking about? No, I, I mean it because it's really raining hard, and I'm saying something to, to try to uh, make a strong uh, impact. So we see this in the Bible a lot. Paul would say, this is the gospel you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Okay, at this time, 
when Paul is writing this, uh, everyone in China, every infant, every single person had heard the gospel. Well, I mean, he is saying it, it's gone out. You know, it's gone big. And um, so I think we want to take it that way rather than and absolutely in a, in a literal sense. All right, what about the plagues of Egypt? Okay, what about the cattle here, where God would say, I will punish you by sending a terrible disease on all your animals, your horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, and goats. And on the next day, the Lord did so. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But of the livestock of the Israelites, not one died. Okay, so every single one died. And I won't quote this here, but if you just read on, the next plague is the boils. And who's affected? People and the livestock. Then you read on the next one. We've got hail. Who's affected? People and the livestock, even though they're all dead. Okay, and then we read on about the Egyptian army that comes with all of their horses. Okay, to the people up to the Red Sea. Well, they'd all just been wiped out. Okay, so um, again, we've, we've got the, you know, the, I, don't, I don't think this, this doesn't bother me at all in terms of uh, inspiration. Uh, there was a plague and the livestock were wiped out. But yet, we still have... Um, a description of some that are left. Okay, and we have verses like this about hating that are used in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, what do you think about this one in Luke 14? Jesus would say, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so you want to be a Christian, you better hate your parents your wife, your children, brothers and sisters, and hate your own life. Okay, can, can we see, that? Do we, does that really mean, is that exactly what uh, we should do? Isn't this meant for, to make a point of emphasis in a relative sense? Okay, of course to be a Christian, I mean, what do we talk about? Love, no, hate, no, isn't this, this is not the point of this verse, right? So we have a, a heretical message paraphrase that comes along here and would say, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father. Well, it actually says hate. But uh, Eugene Peterson, who refused to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, yes, even one's own life, can't be my disciple. Okay, so I, I think this is perfectly fair if we're trying to you know, understand what this means, and maybe someone is reading this and doesn't know about oriental hyperbole and all of that, that we have a, a, a version of the Bible that, um, you know, tries to get, get behind uh, what this, the meaning is. Okay, why did I, oh yeah, um, my wife's from Germany, so I get to learn all these interesting uh, things in translation. But, you know, if you say uh, in German about the blind spot, it is literally the dead angle. Okay, so... Uh, if you were, you know, to translate somewhat something from the German, you would say, well, that's, I'm looking and I can't see in the dead angle. Well, isn't it fair? Couldn't we, even though that would be a literal translation, can't we translate it in a way that, okay, no, for us, we call it the blind spot. So we get into a lot of these kinds of uh, translation issues. And um, so uh, Jeremiah, it's the same kind of a thing. And, and just to think about that, so we have a translational issue but also, I mean, here we're talking about German and English in the 21st century. Here we're talking about something thousands of years ago. Okay, think how expressions change, um, you know, raining cats and dogs and all of that. They weren't talking that way then, but we are now, and perhaps in a thousand years, that would be a totally ridiculous uh, expression to use. Okay, here in Jeremiah, God is talking about his own people. And he would say, I have abandoned Israel. I have rejected my chosen nation 
I have given the people I love. Notice he loves them. I've given the people I love into the power of their enemies. My chosen people have turned against me. Like a lion in the forest, they have roared at me, and so I hate them. Okay, but we have a lot of evidence that even when God's people rebelled, he loves them. Okay, and again, we have something here that is said for effect, to make a point, to make a contrast. They once were in one kind of relationship with God. Now they're in a different, very different uh, kind of a relationship with God. And again, God's love didn't actually turn into hate as, as we think of hate today. Okay, I think I looked at that one, so let's skip over that. So another question we could ask is, well, does God love some more than others? Uh, What about this in John, where Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there? And uh, it's interesting, it's only in John that we hear about this disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Uh, Could sound like, uh, you know, that he had a preference here. Okay, but... But I think this reflects the relationship between those two. Okay, they, they had something that was closer. I mean, who stuck around at the cross? It was John. Okay, so I, I think uh, we could read this in a way uh, other than saying, well, God, for some of us in this room, the love is 100%. For others, it's 80. For some people, it's 30. For some, it's, it's hate. I mean, I, I think we wouldn't want to paint it that way. I think God's love for each of us, it's, you know, you couldn't, couldn't max it out any further. But here is described something, John apparently did have something, if this was John, uh, that that was quite special uh, with Jesus. Okay, so I think a fair question to ask. In fact, I think a very important question. I put the word feel here in quotes, but how does God feel about sinners? Uh, I think if we're trying to paint a picture of God, that uh, for me, uh, it almost would be more important to know how God treats his enemies than how God treats his friends. And so we have all these verses in the Bible, just a few from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah eleven fifteen, God would say, the people I love are doing evil things. And notice the people are doing evil things, but the declaration here is the people I love are doing evil things. Doesn't mean he loves what they're doing, but he's, he loves the people. And uh, this, these, this passage here in Matthew 23, really beautiful. I mean, uh, this is just the very end, and Jesus has really failed to win over uh, the, the religious people. And so he would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone the messengers God has sent you. How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. So he's talking with people that have said no that have turned him away, that are about to crucify him. And what is the attitude? I mean, what would you say to people like that? I mean, you just want to one time really just let them have it. And what he says is, how many times I wanted to put my arms around you. And such a a tender expression here, just like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Okay, and so these are people who have declared that they are enemies, at least of Jesus. And if they're enemies of Jesus, enemies of God. What do you think about the story of the rich man? And you remember he came, we won't go through the whole story, but he asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? And they have this conversation. And remember that he, um, you know, loved money more than, uh, than Jesus' kingdom. And I just, the, the description, it's so many times in Mark this way, uh, just a very personal. Jesus looked straight at him with love. Okay, I'd, I'd love to, uh, you know, the words on the page are so impersonal, but wouldn't you like to, to have the picture, the video? to really see what did that look like when Jesus looked straight at him with love. 
And of course, the man left sad because he didn't want to enter into that kind of a kingdom. But um, I'd love to know what that look was. But this is how Jesus looked at someone, um, again, who uh, rejected him. You know, a little verse in Amos that uh, I find quite interesting. You know, we think of God, he was only working with the Israelites in the Old Testament. But not so. Here's Amos 9, 7. People of Israel, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. He's working with the Ethiopians. I brought the Philistines from Crete. God brought the Philistines from Crete. And the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. So it's an amazing verse here that just describes, you know, God is trying to work with everyone. He's working with the Syrians, the Ethiopians, the Philistines. And uh, I think, again, I would like to, to see here in, in the Bible that, that with every individual person, with every group of people, that God is at all times pulling out all the stops here with these nations that we might normally think he's perhaps not that interested in. <clears throat> okay, so we're kind of you know, hovering around all these issues about God loving Jacob and hating Esau. But does God elect who will be saved or lost? And on this, I would just like to say that uh, there are several verses like this, but 1 Timothy 2.4, that God wants all people to be saved and to learn the truth. So the desire is a, kind of a, a universality. God desires that everyone will be saved. Now, will everyone be saved? Um, well, the um, would, Bible would suggest that, that everyone won't uh, repent and, and turn to God. So we see God not getting what he wants. I mean, he's all-powerful, but he can't coerce and force everyone into the kingdom. But his desire is that everyone will be saved. So maybe I won't uh, quote all of these, but does God arbitrarily show favoritism? Again, that would be one way of looking at Esau and Jacob. We have all of these verses here, but that God does not show favoritism, does not show favoritism, and so on. So um, God, again, is pulling out all the stops for everyone all the time. But let's come back to this. How does God treat his enemies? This is, is so important. And I think the, the best text for this here is in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So fine, Jesus told us to love our enemies. But our question is, how does God feel about his enemies? We are to love our enemies, okay? But are we following God's example in that? What does God do with enemies? So I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And notice, so that you may become the children of your father in heaven. Okay, Jesus associates enemy love with be becoming a, ch a child of God. And now this is incredible. For God makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. In other words, you want to know how God treats his enemies? Well, he gives everyone sunshine. He gives everyone rain. And if we read the same uh, passage here in Luke, he is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. All right, so Jesus doesn't just ask us to love our enemies and not give us the example that God loves his enemies. Look what he does for his enemies. He, he blesses them just as he blesses those um, who love him. He's good to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Okay, and so th what's incredible, though, is how this passage ends. You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, perfection here 
is associated with how we love our enemies. And what this really means is you must be mature, or as the message uh, paraphrase says, grow up, be like God. If we're going to grow up and be like God, then to be like God is in its highest sense. It's associated how we treat those who are not our friends, how we treat our enemies. Love your enemies, pray for them. Uh, that's what God is like. Be like God. So coming back to Malachi here, the opening challenge here, and I think the, the problem that is set in Malachi is that the people have the mindset, you don't love us, God. How have you loved us? And I think everything unravels um, for us if we question that. I mean, I think that, that has to be the foundational. These people are really sad. They doubt that God really loves them. And um, I think it's almost a shame uh, I almost left this out of the Bible study because I think some things are just better if you uh, discover it for yourself rather than just having someone tell you. Um, so this really should be read very slowly. And, and those of you that read through John, uh, go very slowly through the, the words of Jesus in the upper room. But I'm going to go ahead and read it anyway. But, but for me, this is if there is a, a heart of the Bible, uh, it is in these passages here in John 16 and 17 where Jesus would say to his disciples, that means he's about to be crucified. So you would think what he's going to say in this context, which we only get in the Gospel of John, uh, this, is, this is pretty key stuff. Okay? And so um, Jesus would say, well, I have a lot more to tell you, but it would be too much for you to bear. Okay? Wouldn't you like to know what was too much for them to bear? I mean, he kept telling them, I'm going to be crucified. But it's almost like, uh, I don't know, I just get the sense he couldn't help himself. It's too much for you to bear, but now I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you anyway, or at least part of it. And what he would go on to say is, is really remarkable. John 16, 25. I have told you these things in parables, or it could be translated veiled language, allegories, dark sayings. A lot of the Bible is like that. Dark sayings, allegories. But the hour is now coming when I shall no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I shall tell you about the Father in plain words and openly, or without reserve. Now, if we're going to have any place in the Bible where we're going to say this is a clear statement about the Father, uh, this would be it. I mean, we have Jesus' own words the night before he's going to die. Let me tell you plainly about the Father. No dark speech here, no allegories. Uh, this is it. And so it goes on. When that time comes, you will make your request to him, to the Father, in my own name. For I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. And that would seem to go against everything that we believe as Christians. I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. I mean, we built a whole theology, haven't we, around Jesus pleading with the Father for us. And here is Jesus saying, I don't need to plead with the Father for you. Uh, just in other translations here in the good news, when that day comes, you will ask him in my name. And I do not say that I will ask him on your behalf. Jesus will not ask the Father on our behalf. And this, this is intercessory language here, pleading, asking the Father. And uh, so the good speed, the first American translation of the Bible, translates it that way. I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you. I mean, what, what sense are we to make of this? And the incredible words, how this passage uh, concludes. Why not? For the Father himself loves you. I mean, that is just really something. 
Now, do we need an intercessor? Absolutely. But uh, perhaps the function of the intercessor is you know, not, to, not to shield us from someone. The, the function of the intercessor is to bring us to someone. And so um, what I think what is being described here is you know, when we see that the one in between, when we see that the intercessor is himself God, then there really is no one in between. We come to see Jesus as God in human form, fully God, and then the intercessor becomes you know, God himself. There is no one in between. And the Father himself loves you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, I think that's just a, an incredible last little message that Jesus um, gave to his disciples. All right, so there's one other part here in Malachi that uh, I think we should talk about. And uh, this is, I think, uh, good timing here. We're going to talk about uh, Jesus and the Gospel of John. And so I want to try to understand this. This is Malachi 3. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Of course, Jesus would use this to refer to John the Baptist. And then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord Almighty. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? Now, is this referring to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Who will be able to endure it? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that whitens clothes. He will sit and judge like a refiner of silver, watching closely as the dross is burned away. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold or silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. So uh, are we talking about a future time here? Because this, this wouldn't seem, I mean, did Jesus do that? Well, I think this is referring to Jesus, but perhaps we need to understand a little bit uh, behind this. And uh, we have to take into account here the, the people that Jesus encountered. Remember Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, they were very strict. They stopped all the idolatry. You couldn't intermarry. They would rip your beard out if you didn't keep the Sabbath. And so we have these people here during Jesus' time who, who kept a pretty good list. They kept the law. They read their Bibles. They would never miss church. They weren't intermarrying. No idolatry. Even tithing the seeds. Um, you remember they would send an evangelist halfway around the world. Uh, they were even into health reform. They kept the Sabbath. And so that, that these are the people that, that rejected Jesus. Okay, what does this mean? Remember, these are the people that, you know, going to church, doing all of these things, that would look at Jesus. And Jesus would say to them, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to listen to my message. They couldn't bear it. Why? You are the children of your father, the devil. And you want to follow your father's desires. And they asked Jesus, were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? So, you know, a very religious people that would look at God in human form and say he's on Satan's side. And, of course, Jesus was right back at them and say, well, you have your, your father, the devil. So we're arguing about who's on the devil's side here. Okay, but, uh, you know, some have argued that uh, Jesus' uh, biggest, what he was hated for more than anything else, was who he ate with. I think we can make a long list of why they hated Jesus. But certainly, as you read through the Gospels, time and time again, it was, well, why are you with those people? Why are you hanging out with those people? Uh, that was very offensive. Okay, we're using the Message Bible a lot here today, but uh, I like uh, this very loose here uh, paraphrase, that when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. 
tax collectors, and so on. And when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Okay, so you'll never get this from the Greek, of course, but you know it's pretty strong in any translation. Okay, why are you hanging out with uh, the scum of society? Incredibly offensive. Uh, the way Jesus treated, we're talking about how does God treat sinners? Uh, you have people like the woman caught in adultery. You know, they wanted to stone her, and it was very offensive. Uh, the way that Jesus dealt with her it was very offensive. That Jesus would uh, heal lepers. Okay, because by def- their mindset, if you're a leper, you're cursed by God. And so Jesus' intervention and in all of these things uh, was very offensive. And the point I'm trying to make is this is the refining fire. Okay, Jesus came as the, you know, the brightest light of who God is. And how do you respond to that? You reject that. Uh, that's pretty serious. So who, who will endure this language of uh, the words we speak and the way we live as, as being incredibly important? Uh, so much of this we find in Jeremiah. Okay, in the opening of Jeremiah's uh, message, the Lord reached out, touched my lips, and said to me, listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority, Jeremiah, over nations, kingdoms, to uproot, to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And how did all of that happen? It was words. Okay, it was the rejected message of Jeremiah that led to entire nations being overthrown. Jeremiah, because these people have said such things, I will make my words like a fire in your mouth. The people will be like wood, and the fire will burn them up. Okay, so again, very, very serious here when you, when you have a strong revelation of God, of his kingdom, and to reject that is to be burned up. And again, in Jeremiah 23, my message is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. So we, we hear about fire, and we, we tend to think about something in a much different order. But again, it's used in the same way in Jeremiah. So when Jesus, again, going back to John, I think his last words to the, uh, the Pharisees are here in John 12, where he would say, those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Okay, who's the judge? The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. Okay, so again, the, the, the revelation of Jesus, his life, his words, I mean, what words? Uh, put a lot of words in there, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Uh, they certainly rejected a God who would be like Jesus, and that will be your judge. Very serious um, to reject that. Okay, so Jesus came as a refiner's fire, and I just want to think about this a little bit more here. Who will be able to endure? Who will be able to stand? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that whitens clothes. He will sit and judge like a refiner of silver, watching, uh, watching closely as the dross is burned away. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold or silver. The, the emphasis here is... Um, Jesus coming to transform, to heal, to change. Okay, notice, to, to refine, to burn away dross. This is, he came to do something more than uh, to pay a penalty. Uh, he came to uh, change us. And so the image that's used so many times uh, when we did Isaiah a couple years ago, we talked about the refiner's fire, uh, an image used so many times in the Old Testament. And uh, we said at that time that 
You know, when a person is refining metal, how do they know when it's done, when it's ready? And they know it's done because they see their own reflection in the metal. Okay, when they see their own reflection, they know that the process is complete. And so what, what Jesus came to do, you know, it's by beholding we become changed. Okay, he came to reveal to us this is what God is, God is like. And that is the all-important thing. What is our picture of God? And in the process, again, by beholding, uh, we become changed. Um, so much of it that way. You know, even the words uh, that are usually translated, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, repent is uh, metanoia. Meta is change. Noia is brain. And so really, in, in many of the modern translations say, change your mind. Okay, came to change our mind by, I think, revealing to us a different picture of what God is like. Because it's, it's supremely important. What, we all worship something. And um, you know, I think it's just a rule. It's like a law of gravity. We become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And I love this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And so our focus here over the next couple months when we go through the Gospel of John will be Jesus as a revelation of God. We see Jesus do something, well, that's what God is doing. And we'll try to approach the Gospel of John that way. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you so much for uh, what becomes so clear in the Bible, your great attempts to speak a language that we can understand, uh, to meet people in a specific time and culture that uh, may be confusing to us, but help us to see more clearly your words to the disciples in the upper room about the Father himself loving us, and that we come to see a God who really does love us fully. Amen. <clears throat>